looking for great prices on technology? At Harvey Norman, our specialist staff can help find the product that's right for you. We have all the biggest brands and latest technology in stock today, like the Geoflex 110, the convertible 2-in-1 laptop with Office 365 pre-installed, now 249 save 150 euro, or exceed your goals with the Fitbit Charge 4 fitness tracker, now only 99 euro save 30. Discover our huge range in store or online today. Harvey Norman, your technology specialists. Now on Documentary on News Talk, we take a trip back to Dublin in the 1940s, when one of the greatest dynasty teams in history began their famous streak of winning, in the first of a new two-part radio documentary series, Dynasty, the greatest ladies' team of all time. And ready, the game really picking up a notch or two in tempo in the last couple of minutes. Still eight points to four, Kilkenny the leaders. And down is shot blocked down here. Under pressure, however, once again from Christine Harding, fully committed. Now, I haven't always loved hurling and camogie. I am from Meath. Not really a traditional powerhouse in the sport, which means I wasn't really exposed to it either in my childhood. But as I grew up and began to appreciate the sport through reading and research, I learned some of the amazing sporting stories and had a particular interest in camogie. Now, this series is called Dynasty, the greatest ladies' teams, and for sure we're going to talk about that great Dublin camogie team that won 19 All-Irelands in 20 years. But first, I wanted to really feel what the sport meant to someone whose life has been completely completely steeped in it. So I spoke with former player, referee, association president and delegate Hillis Breslin to get an insight into what attracted her to the sport from a young age. I played as all children played in the Phoenix Park on the street. We played everything. We played canny, we played Levio, we played cricket up against a wall. Uh, we played everything that was going. <clears throat> and because we went to Stanhope Street School, or indeed St. Gabriel's, the mothers used to go up and sit inside the Phoenix Park, the gates of the Phoenix Park, because there was a, um, a hillock on it. And they would knit while the children went to school. And the children always knew where the parents were. Uh, they were up in the Phoenix Park. We only had to walk. We didn't even have to walk a mile to come to the park. Mothers knew where we were whether they were um, pushing a pram or just sitting with their, their neighbours, if you like. So the Phoenix Park was my home and it is the most magnificent thing that we could ever have, even in this day and age. Um, but for the Phoenix Park, I don't know where I'd be because I live um, just on the infirmary road. So <laughs> there was a lady um, on Oxmantown Road and her sons and daughters played Camogie and their name was um, Monalise. And Mrs Monalise would go up and down um, to the church for Mass at 10 o'clock and I kept saying to my mum, will you ask Mrs Monalise, can I join on row? Will you ask Mrs? So it went on for a while and um, eventually they said that, um, yes, we could, uh, I could play or I could go and join them and see what happens. And that was, I played under 14 because the Dublin County Board had what was known as a shield. And um, I played when I was about 11. Now, I was younger than that uh, because of the fact that Onro's name was on that shield for seven years. 
and then we progressed. Unro had a very, a very good camogie team, but again, we're sitting in Oliver Plunkett Unro's pavilion, and um, they used to have the pitch which is outside the door here, and. Um, because they, they started in about 1930, I think it was about 1933, 34, on row GAA. And the girls who used to come up when they played in the park and they could see when there was a match on outside uh, with on row playing. And they enjoyed themselves immensely. And eventually they asked if they could become part of on row hurling club. And it was granted after many, because um, it really was a male dominant um, club and the women, of course, had to bow and scrape and ask, can we? But eventually they allowed us to be part of it. We were registered at the county board and we fielded um, a lot of teams um, from juvenile up to senior. So I was part of that, not, not at that stage, I'm not that old. Most people think that I am, but I'm not. Um, and I don't know, the Phoenix Park, as I said, is something else. We had two pitches um, and we just called them number one and number two. And they were granted to us um, during the, uh, the, in the beginning of the independence. And I thought that, that it was given to us uh, just by the state, but I'm, I'm told, it was the state, but I'm told that it was instigated by um, Michael Collins. And I'm told that that was right, that uh, he was uh, the Minister for Parks, I think. I don't know what he was, but he was something in the government. And Camogie had a gentleman by the name of Sean O'Duffy. And that is what the All-Ireland is played for at the moment. It is called the O'Duffy Cup. It is not the Sean O'Duffy Cup, as people will will always say. The Sean O'Duffy Cup is not. It's the O'Duffy Cup because it was his brother that presented it to us. The first Camogie final was played in 1932, <coughs> and it has been played ever since for the O'Duffy Cup. Now we have changed it. Well, I don't think we had it at that stage, but um, when it was first played for, uh, and we still have it to this day. Inspired by Phyllis, I really wanted to know more about the history of the sport, the who's, the what's, the when's, the where's, the why's. I was really curious to know about the history, but also the cultural climate in Ireland at the time. Was Camogie reflecting what was really going on in Ireland? I spoke with Professor Paul Roos from UCD to get an overall understanding of the early years of Camogie. I think the starting point for any conversation around camogie and its origins has to look at the Gaelic Athletic Association and the founding of the Gaelic Athletic Association in 1884, an organisation that was founded by men and for men. There was no serious consideration given to include women in that organisation, so the revolution in game playing in Ireland, the revolution in modern sports in Ireland, in terms of the revival of 
Irish sports in terms of hurling and the invention of Gaelic football was to be for men. And this was absolutely in keeping with the wider sense of the sporting revolution where modern sports were constructed by men and for men. If you look at associations, so for example, the Football Association founded in London in 1863, the follow-on association, the Rugby Football Union, and so on, all the major field sports were designed without women in mind because it was not just about playing a game, it was also about playing a game in a particular way. That is to say that it wasn't just men who played these games, but a very particular type of men. In other words, men were to be brave, powerful, strong. They were to display kind of characteristics of manliness of a very particular type, so-called. There was to be, as one newspaper put it at the time, uh, effeminacy was to be discouraged. Any show of brittleness was to be suppressed. This was uh, about a certain way of bearing. And in that way of bearing, there was no room for women. So if you think about it in, in, in terms of the general context of the times, the sporting revolution was a male revolution. It is true. It is true that there were certain organizations, kind of say, for example, in hockey or in netball or in lacrosse or in golf, tennis, where there was space for women. But it was space of a very particular type. So even in tennis or in golf clubs, there were different categories of membership. There was male membership and then there was female membership. And there were certain clubs which permitted only of men and not of women. So the rule book was shaped in particular ways to make that design, make that difference clear. And what this was, of course, was a reflection of wider society because, of course, the place of women in sport reflected the place of women in wider society where when these organisations were founded, women didn't have the vote. Women did not have the right to act as, for example, solicitors and so on. There were professions closed to women. They weren't even expected. They weren't allowed to work in banks ordinarily. Uh, the idea was that that women had a certain place and it wasn't on the field and it was it was to be something that that um, that they stayed away from. Essentially, their place was in the home and to bear children. And if you think again of the science of this, this wasn't just cultural. If this was just cultural, then it's easier beaten down. But the science of the late 19th century said that women were different to men in terms of their cell constitution, that men, women only had a finite amount of energy and that they should not waste that energy playing sport. And indeed, the very fact of playing sport undermined a woman's capacity to have children. And of course, if it did that, then of course, well, that simply couldn't. She would have to forgo the idea of play. And then in fashion, the idea was that women would you know, be wan and pale and not exercise, not have robust health, that they would eat relatively little amounts of food and so on. So again, this was against the idea of sports and against the idea of a male way of playing sports. So therefore a divide was created. And in that modern sporting world of the end of the 19th century and the first years of the 20th century, this was profoundly a man's world. Well, again, going back to Phyllis, I was really keen to hear how she played back in the day. 
As the GAA grew, clubs were granted their own pitches, but back when Phyllis started out, all the Dublin Camogie games were played in the Phoenix Park, with each game being played every hour on the hour. If I said to you, if you look at the Phoenix Park where we're sitting now, if you look up, the two pitches were encased by just railings. There was no, um, there was nothing on it. But most Dublin teams, or all Dublin teams, played and trained on the number two pitch. Now at that stage we didn't have nets. Uh, we were looking to have goalposts. And uh, we had to do, at least Dublin had to do the maintenance of, of the pitches. And again, because I'm living so near the Phoenix Park, there were Sundays I had to come up and say um, whether the pitches were playable or not, because they played so many matches that the, the gold mouths were always uh, waterlogged. And sometimes they had to brush them out to be able to play the matches, which is, is unbelievable in this day, but it did happen. Um, so, you know, matches were played from 11 o'clock in the morning, um, in the winter on to three, and in the summer you could be having matches at six o'clock, seven o'clock in the evening. And the amount of people that would uh, just drive through the Phoenix Park, uh, park on the side of the pitch at that stage, and uh, watch, and they were in awe of the women that played um, Camogie. They really were in awe of them, that they had the skills that the men had, but they, they had never seen the ladies play. Um, there was a, a pavilion um, not too far from us here, about <clears> a <throat> thousand metres. Um, it wasn't great, but it, it served a purpose at that. There was no distinction between them. They were just ordinary players, but they happened to be picked on the Dublin team. But they, they gave their heart and soul to it, and their clubs did too. But the, the, the most famous person that was there was Nell McCarthy. And she was um, a lady from Cork. She worked for the civil service and she belonged to a club called Celtic, not Celtic, Celtic. And um, she took on the Dublin teams and she had three selectors. Most times they were uh, herself, Molly Murphy, and uh, Molly Murphy was Molly Murphy, but she was Molly Fitzgerald and um, she played in the Talton Games in whatever year. Um, and Mrs. T was John Timmins's wife, which was um, metal manufacturers. And they were the, the, the selectors, if you like. And they trained the team. They looked after them as well as they could. But it's all amateur. Which is, which is right, if you like. But they were very successful under Nell, very successful. Um, their teams, um, as I said, the first, the first All-Ireland was in, um, in 1932. And the team of 32, 10 counties entered um, an inaugural All-Ireland Championship organized um, on an open draw basis start of the competition was delayed until the autumn because of the Talton, the Talton Games. Uh, consequently the matches 
dragged on into the following year. A few counties donned the same colour as their GAA teams. Money was very tight and new sets of players, player gear, playing gear was uh, beyond most budgets. Instead, the county teams took the field in the colours of the county championship in the uniform of the club that um, a respectable set of gear, frocks. Cork regularly borrowed gym frocks from UCC, who very conveniently did not use them during the summer months. So, you know, we're going back a long time. Because we're sitting here in 2021. So we have a very long um, history attached to us because of the fact that Dublin dominated most of uh, from the, the 30s. With each new bit of information, I was becoming really invested. Such a rich history for an amazing sport. And I went back to Paul because now I was really keen to know what were the founding members like and how did they evolve the sport? The women who founded the Camogie Association, women who were the first people who, to play Camogie, to play stick and ball game, were pioneers, they were radicals. Um, they turned the sporting world on their head by virtue of what they did because you must think of it in these terms, in my view. The GEA presented itself as a sporting organisation for all, as a community-based sporting organisation, as one that was open to people of all classes. Well, yes, but only if you were a man. Now, the, the issue then arose in the first years of the 1900s because what would what would happen if women started to play sport? What sport would they play? How would they play it? And society was beginning to change at the end of the 19th century into the early 20th century in terms of the opportunities that were opening up for women. So you have, for example, women increasingly moving into later stages of education, increasingly getting work in the civil service, increasingly working as teachers. These women moved to Dublin from, from the countryside and kind of began to build independent lives here. Now, lives of these are massively restricted lives compared to the lives that are enjoyed now. It was a very, very staid thing. But when they came to Dublin, many joined organisations such as the Gaelic League, Cunner and Gaelga, which was active in the city. And if you look at a very particular branch of the Gaelic League called the Keating Branch, in the Keating Branch of the Gaelic League was a really, really vibrant group of people who were dedicated to the revival of Irish and they worked hard at it. They worked hard at Irish classes and they worked hard at having a social life which was constructed through Irish of going on picnics and going on walks and having dances and so on. And there were both men and women in this in this Keating branch of the Gaelic League and the men had a Gaelic football team and they had a hurling team but the women had nothing. But the women decided that they wished to play stick and buggums, and why shouldn't they? They, they? they saw themselves as being as capable as men in their own way, and they came from backgrounds. They were all country people. There were backgrounds in which the playing of sport was part of it. 
and you can imagine a scenario whereby at home they played informally with their brothers or with neighbours, even if they weren't allowed formally join clubs that were founded by the GAA. So a group of these women began in 1903 to travel to the Phoenix Park in Dublin and by their own testimony many of them hid their hurleys as they travelled to the park or by tram under their coats as they drove through the city for fear of ridicule and the abuse that would be heaped upon them and they did that. So they travelled up on tram to the back end of the park and slowly but surely increased their numbers and began to play there. And from that point through 1904 there were enough people there to begin to find clubs and then to move on from that into the founding of the Camogie Association. And they slowly but insistently spread it for years and it was really difficult. And in the first 10 years, they made a slight amount of progress in various, in various ways. But there are two things to bear in mind in this. They were embedded, first of all, in, the great, in that kind of idea of nationalist revival. They were embedded in ideas of language revival in terms of the clubs in the city. And they were women who began to move into the kind of, the, the, not so much the professions, but more desk jobs in, in the city through the civil service. But they were, <clears throat> they were national revivalists in many instances, number one. Some of them were more than that, in that they were radicalised and involved in coming them on and in other organisations. And you can see this as you moved in, move in towards 1916 and afterwards, the women within the Camogie Association who were, who were absolutely radical in their politics and believed in that. Now, that's not to say, by the way, that that was most women. It wasn't, uh, but it was a significant section of them uh, to be powerful, to be powerful in it. It should be acknowledged, however, the difficulties which came with spreading a sport, and that was that the Camogie Association kind of limped along in certain areas, in certain counties, and in others it just had no part. It just, it just couldn't develop. There was no structure of development for it, uh, and it and it fell asunder. So Camogie never swept the land. It was never a game played in every corner of every county. It did not enjoy the level of prosperity which the Gaelic Athletic Association had for football, uh, for Gaelic football and for hurling. More than that, it was an organisation which although associated with the GEA, was never part of it. It was entirely separate from the beginning and remained entirely separate. And although there was, there was a sharing of facilities to some extent in the use of grounds as they were developed by the GEA and in particular the use of Croke Park later on. Um, although that was done, it, it was something which, which um, it, it was quite limited in that the GEA just focused on its own business and it was, it was men's business that they were, they were interested in and they, the GEA has to has to stand accused of of not doing enough to further Camogie during these years. You're listening to Dynasty, the greatest ladies team of all time on Documentary on News Talk. And ready, the game really picking up a notch or two in tempo in the last couple of minutes. Still eight points to four, Kilkenny the leaders. And Danny shot blocked down here. Under pressure, however, once again from Christine Harding, fully committed. 
Now, as I previously said in part one, the title of this documentary series is called Dynasty, the greatest ladies teams of all time. And I did mention that Dublin team that had won 19 All-Irelands in 20 years. Now, just let that sink in for a minute. 19 All-Irelands in 20 years. Were you even aware of that? Now, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't shocked when I'd found it out. What a complete and utter amazing accomplishment. And as I researched the team, that infamous team, one name kept coming up, Kay Mills. She was a 15-time All-Ireland winner and one of the very best to ever play the game. The most famous player that we, we had was the lady called Kay Mills. And she, in her time, won 15 All-Ireland medals playing Camogie. And it, will, it won't ever be surpassed by anybody else. Now, she played with a lot of very good people, but they came in and out of the Dublin team. But Kay was the, the master and the mistress of the Camogie pitch. And um, she was... She was a beautiful person as well as a beautiful camogie player. She played for CIE, which was um, over in Inchicore. She was part of, her father worked in, in Inchicore in the railway um, section or the repair shop or whatever you call it. And so there was, um, there was, um, there was fields over there because of the fact that it was so big at the time and the kids used to go out and play on the green if you like or in the and they tell me that the men going in and out of the works in Inchicore used to stand and stare at these children playing hurling as they called it but it really was camogie and Kay played different sports because I'm told that she played different sports and um, she, she was an athlete as well as everything else. But her love was, uh, I think she played table tennis because Inchicore had to have um, recreation for their, their workers, if you like, and the workers' family. So Kay was one of these people who took on everything and excelled at everything. And uh, I think I told you the story about um, about her going to England to um, to run in some competition, whether it was between the companies or it was an open one, I don't know. But she come off and she had uh, she won uh, the competition, whatever it was for, and they gave her um, they gave her a set of delf, but they wrapped the delf in newspaper. And of course, at that stage, the, the, the only thing that crossed the water was the uh, Dunleary at the, the mailboat. And when, she was go when they were going out and coming back, they had to be searched because they were searched, most of them, for, um, for goods that they shouldn't have. But when Kay was coming back, um, they asked her to open the bag and she opened it and she produced the set of Delph in the papers. And, um, they said, I'm afraid, 
uh, you can have the Delft but you can't have the papers because you're not allowed uh, uh, the news of the world in this country. So they took the paper off her, but they left her with the, uh, with the, uh, with the Delph. Um, I have seen her play. I have been on the sideline at one stage and she maintained that I gave the, the decision going the wrong way and uh, she glared at me. But that's like I had seen her playing. Uh, many times but I never officiated on the pitch but I do remember that one and she glared at me. K-Mills played on some amazing teams with some amazing players and Phyllis had seen them play on a few occasions but she was also enamoured by some of the other teams that they faced such as Antrim. We had some lovely players playing uh, in Dublin and the, the four that you would say would be Mills, Cody, um, Una O'Connor, Sophie Brack and in latter years I suppose Judy Doyle. But they were all something else um, as people. And you know, when you see them going to the north of Ireland to play against Antrim, because Antrim again was, was one of the key um, counties. Dublin Antrim finals were something else, because Antrim were the only one who stopped Dublin one year, uh, winning that All-Ireland. And the next year, Dublin came back and beat them again. But you know, Antrim, in the north of Ireland. It really is something else. When you, when you think about it, you know, that we have rugby, and it is a 32 counties. If we had soccer, would it be good? I think so. But we have Camogie, and we have Antrim playing in, we have Derry playing in, we have Armagh. We have them all playing in, in Camogie. I think there's only two counties that do not play Com well, don't now play Camogie, and that is Longford and um, Leitrim. They're the only two, well, the only two, there could be three now, that don't play Camogie. So, it's, it's, it really is a wonderful sport. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you another thing, um, in I suppose it was 97 or 98, because I was the president at the time. Um, and Kay passed away and her, her family, her, her husband, <clears throat> gave us money and we decided that we would give the captain of the winning team a replica of the All-Ireland Odofi Cup and the first time I had to make a presentation of it was, I think it was to Cork, but I had to say a couple of fuckle and I did and I said um, how proud I was that uh, this was the first one that I, uh, the Kane Mills Cup, um, who played for Dublin, uh, who was a famous Dublin player and Nell from the 
table in front of me said, she was Cork, which she was, her father was Cork. <laughs> and I think she might have been born in Cork, but I didn't get away with it. So there you are, you know, there, there were funny things happened, but listen. Just looking at the dominance of Dublin during those years and them only being challenged by Cork and Antrim, I asked Paul, why were there not more counties in the mix for all Ireland's? The reason why Cork, Dublin and Antrim won their All-Ireland is partly to do with the presence of country girls living and working in cities who play for those teams, but it was also to do with the network of clubs that were established there and by the abject failure to spread the game in areas that would, might otherwise be considered hurling areas where women were left on the sidelines and were it's not so much that they were discouraged from playing, they just certainly weren't provided with the opportunity to play. And again, this, this should be no surprise. This is a reflection of how society in general worked at the time. It's a reflection of the wider position of, of women in Irish society. It's a reflection also of how women perceived themselves within that society by virtue of what they'd been they'd been kind of put through during these during these years and, and by virtue of what they'd experienced during these years. Like this is this this is no this is and can be no great shock that women should that 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 it should have been organized like this. And the the result was that the number of competitive counties in the Camogie world was extremely low. It was just it was just something that 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 was 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 the preserve of 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 a very very few and it it is it, it it's interesting like it's interesting to think about it that you should have so many people who would be interested in the game, but they were perceived as being there to watch the game. And if you look at reports of GA matches from all across these years, all across the years, there are reports of huge numbers of women attending matches. So that spoke of a wider interest amongst women in Gaelic games. There's no doubt that that interest was there. And yet, it took somebody like Maura Nikanejan, who was a graduate of the Royal University, which is kind of like the forerunner of the National University of Ireland, to develop a code of rules for Camogie. And I think it's really interesting though, that those rules were amended in ways that were considered to make the game more suitable to women. So it wasn't just that, it wasn't just a name that was changed because of course you couldn't have women hurling because that would be seen as being somewhat disrespectful of men's hurling. But the hurlies and the slitters were to be smaller and lighter than the, those used by men. The pitch was shortened to stand between 60 and 100 yards in length and between 40 and 60 yards in width. The number of players per team was set at 12 because you mightn't get enough women for 15 aside. And in those unique early rules, actually there was one which forbade the deliberate stopping of the ball with the long flowing skirts that were then fashionable amongst the early players and which they were expected. It's Dublin and it was Antrim. But the game did spread tentatively. Um, in counties like Louth and Fermanagh and Monaghan in those first years. And again, it was always around Conra, Conra and Aguilga. 
and it should be noticed as well, by the way, that there was also a man called Sean O'Duffy, who was a leading player and administrator with the Croaks Club in Dublin. And he he really worked hard for Camogie in, in, in the city to try and get it, to get it moving. But so limited was the success that by 1911, six years after the Ark Association had been founded in early 1905, it had been determined, deemed necessary to re-establish a common Camogie or Camogie Association and to try and put it on an equal footing because it was struggling to spread itself beyond things. Now, it is true again, though, by 1912 that there were Camogie matches playing, being played relatively regularly in each of the four counties that the game was dominated by single women who were either graduates or, or, or were out at work. And it was in 1912 that the first ever inter-county game, that is the game not played between clubs, was played in 1912 when Dublin defeated Loud at Jones's Road. Now the Loud team was made all up, almost entirely women from, from Dundalk. And I think that's important too, it was towns, towns and cities to wear in this whole uh, rising. I should have mentioned, by the way, on that same Sean O'Duffy. Sean O'Duffy was an ardent nationalist who fought uh, in North King Street and some fairly violent fighting along there in North King Street during the 19. 1916 rising. Now I have to admit I was really engaged now and speaking with Phyllis and Paul was completely amazing and really opened my eyes and opened my mind and I wanted to hear more personal stories. I wanted to get a feel for Camogie, what it was like back in the day. And so I asked Phyllis to tell me more about her personal experiences. What was it like to be involved at the time? I remember at one stage that um, Row were playing on number two pitch and Mrs Timmons was refereeing and there was um, there was, I think I was, I was playing, and um, we were playing Celtic, and one of our forwards hit a ball very hard, and Honor Flynn, I think, was in the goal for Celtic, and she went down like a ton of bricks, and Mrs. Timmons stopped the match. Uh, we had to wait for an ambulance to come, and um, Honor was in the Richmond Hospital. And I think um, something happened with her kneecap. I know she was in an awful lot of pain, but Mrs. Timmons called, called the match off. And um, we were, that was on the Sunday. The meeting was on the Monday. And of course, Mrs. Timmons had to tell why she called the match off because they were waiting on the ambulance to come. And it was an unseen thing that an ambulance came through the Phoenix Park. To, to the Camogie pitches, but anyway, they did. And then um, the the powers that be at the, the at the county board meeting decided that it was rough and tumble, and but it was from both teams, and that they called the two teams in to tell them, because I was the delegate at the time, and they, they maintained that the, that it was a very rough match and it shouldn't be happening, etc., etc. There was nothing done about it, but poor Al Honor was still um, 
when she was out of hospital at that stage. But I went in to see her the night of the, the, of the meeting. The match was on the, the Sunday. I went in to the Richmond the next day to see how she was. And then I went on to the meeting. And of course, I said, she, she's in hospital, but I don't think, I said, I was talking to her this evening, she wasn't that bad. So that's another memory that goes back, and that's a long time ago. But um, we played every hour on the hour, and we had to get permission from the association to play 20 minutes aside to give us the hour, to give us 20 minutes, 20 minutes for the second half, the little break in the middle. And uh, so that the next match come on, because we had two pitches at the time, and they played every hour. And then we were granted two more pitches up, um, we call them just number three, number four. Now number four was a smaller pitch, um, but it was more a juvenile pitch. But we had permission for years and years uh, in Dublin to play our matches 20 minutes each way because we needed the time to play a match on the hour every hour because there were so many matches. So again, that's another thing in, in Dublin's favour. Camogie, outside of the county, was played 25 minutes each way. Now that was stepping up five minutes each way for Dublin clubs and Dublin players. And that was a lot in some people's estimation. And then they, they got that through and it was through. Um, and then they wanted to bring in the 30 minutes. And of course, this was 10 minutes each way for Dublin, uh, extra, because they were only playing the club games at 20 minutes, and now they were playing at 25 minutes, and now they wanted them to play at 30 minutes. So, eventually it was, it was agreed, and I don't think it did a hell of a lot of damage, but it was, at the time, it was a big thing. Um, because of the fact that we still wanted to play our matches in the Phoenix Park every hour on the hour. And as I spoke with Phyllis, I learned one big thing that I had never heard of before. And spoiler alert, I didn't know that Dublin used to be blue and white. Going back to the Dublin team, like, we used to be blue and white. When the Dublin footballers became as prominent as they were, um, I suppose it was in the 50s or 60s or in indeed 70s, they changed to blue and navy. So Dublin put in a motion into um, their county convention that Dublin's, um, Dublin's colour should change to the blue and navy. And that's how they, they're blue and navy now, but they were always blue and white always, um, up to the change. And that was because the footballers were doing so well. Again, I go back to this Dublin team when they started off, or in latter years, Sophie Brack played with, um, with Dublin. She played with CIE, and she lived in Sally Noggin. And she would cycle from Sally Noggin on a Sunday morning, or in the evening, or whatever. Um, to play a match because there was no transport and cycle home again. And the girls would do that uh, no matter what, they, you know, they had a match in 
Ashbourne or something. Um, it was nothing to them to get on a bike and go. You know, things have changed, but they've changed for the better in many ways. Um, but I don't think there's as much camaraderie as there was uh, in those days because they were, they were all together for, they were drawn together from each of the clubs and yet they were a team of their, on their own. And that's, that's the big thing about Dublin. Um, now we have the added advantage, disadvantage of um, ladies football. Now, there's no reason why the two of them or the four of them should not come together and be part of one big organisation. But um, Camogie is, they started in 1904 and this is 20, so they're 116 years old. And that's the end of episode one of this series. Thanks again to the magnificent Phyllis Breslin and Paul Roos for their time and talent. And the next episode takes a look at the amazing Kilkenny team that won seven All-Irelands in a row in the 80s and 90s. Jackie Codd. Half blocked down, it runs on Video Sullivan in some pressure, facing her own goal line. Pressure applied by the substitute Paula Rankin. And ready, the game really picking up a notch or two in tempo in the last couple of minutes. Still eight points to four, Kilkenny the leaders. And down is shot blocked down here. Under pressure, however, once again from Christine Harding, fully committed. Brilliantly forward by Deirdre Malone for Kilkenny. Tina Fitzhenry, much better game now in this second half and the last few minutes of it. Dynasty, the greatest ladies team of all time, was produced by Jonathan Farrelly and was supported by a grant from the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland as part of the Sound and Vision Scheme.